This is the Future of Agriculture podcast, the show that explores the people, companies, and ideas shaping the future of agribusiness. If you're curious about innovations in ag tech, rural entrepreneurship, ag sustainability, or food security, this is the show for you. Let's get started. Hey there, thank you so much for joining me for this episode. My name is Tim Hamrich, and I get to invite you into a story every week of the founders, farmers, innovators, and investors shaping the future of agriculture. We often have ag tech startup founders on this show, and we occasionally have investors on as guests as well. But today is a rare opportunity to feature both a cool startup and a venture capital firm that invested in that startup. This is a concept I've been really interested in trying to execute for a long time. I just hadn't really put it together as sort of why we invested intro, followed by a deeper dive into the startup itself with the founder. It took me kind of finding the right partner to, to pull this off and to put it all together. I certainly found the right partner in Fulcrum Global Capital, started by three accomplished investors who spun off the state of Kansas venture investment arm. Fulcrum Global Capital invests in startups looking to disrupt global agriculture, ag tech, or animal health. You're going to hear from all three of Fulcrum's venture partners today, as well as one of their portfolio companies, PNP Optica founder Olga Palachek. But first, Fulcrum managing partner Dwayne Cantrell gives some background on the venture capital firm. We were the executive team at an organization called the Kansas Bioscience Authority. The KBA served as kind of the venture investment arm for the state of Kansas, focused entirely upon biosciences. So agriculture and ag tech, human health and animal health. The state was struggling to, to continue to meet its obligations. And obviously, uh, venture doesn't work unless there's a reliable source of capital. So we eventually negotiated with the state to kind of hand that portfolio back to them. And then we, after a period of time, uh, we spun out and then started Fulcrum Global Capital because we saw the opportunity was significant and really around global food. And we also saw that there really at that time, even a few years ago, not that many venture funds wholly focused on global food issues. And so we saw the opportunity there. Secondly, Tim, I would say that by sitting in Kansas City, particularly, we really sit in the center of the agricultural belt of, of the United States and North America, and particularly the Animal Health Corridor, which is this kind of marketing group that in Columbia, Missouri and Manhattan, Kansas, about a 350 mile stretch represents about 56% of the global GDP in animal health, nutrition, food, feed, et cetera. That's moved from 42% in, in 2012 to today, 56%. And so the other factor there is that the, the National Bio Agri-Defense Facility, which is the U.S.'s top it is the CDC of animal health, if you will, is being built in Manhattan, Kansas, as we speak, and that will be moving. Its current location is in Plum Island, New York, and all that, when that is completed about this time next year, there'll be a migration of all that research around animal health-related diseases and technologies, and uh, we were positioned well, and we believe that there was an opportunity for a, another fund to be focused solely around kind of this global food issue. 
Now, as you could tell, the Midwest roots of the firm run deep and can certainly be a competitive advantage in a lot of ways, especially in animal health. But the firm still remains globally minded. Venture partner and general counsel John Perriam describes their investment thesis. Our general thesis is global food production. And for us, that really breaks down into, into, into three big verticals. One is traditional agriculture, row crops, things, things that come out of the ground. The second is animal health. And for us, that's production animal, not necessarily on the companion animal side. And then the third is ag tech, which can be a standalone, but obviously oftentimes bleeds through the other two verticals. So really big verticals that we're interested in. And you layer on top of that three types of companies or or groups of technologies that we're really looking for. The first is it revolves around production. And for us, increases in production sort of silent in that area is, is a sustainability element. We are not a impact fund. We're not a, we don't consider ourselves a clean tech fund, but you can't make any headway in the production and global food production without being a better steward of our resources, using them more efficiently. So production is one element. The reduction of waste is another throughout the, the entire value system. And the third is the increase in safety in our food system. And again, there, there's elements of traceability and transparency. So I joke with my partners all the time that that's a really big thesis. And actually, there's room in that thesis for multiple funds, depending on how you cut it. We find ourselves on the earlier stage of that. We don't do things that are consumer branded that go directly to consumers necessarily. We're on, as Kevin likes to say, the life science side. So not only early stage in terms of a company's life cycle, but early in terms of where the technology falls in the value chain of the food production system. So now to zoom in on what that looks like in practice, venture partner and CFO Kevin Lockett will introduce you to the portfolio company that we're going to feature in our episode here today, PNP Optica. Kevin will also give you a little bit of the story about how the deal came about and why they're excited about the future of this company. We met Olga at a conference and really loved her pitch. And then we spent about 15 to 16 months really just tracking her and getting to know her before we actually made an investment. And so one of the things we really like to do is we like to meet companies very, very early. And then we just sort of like to track them for quite a while. Rarely are you going to see Fulcrum make a decision in a couple of weeks of getting to know know a firm. I think for us, that relationship is very personal. We, we truly see investing in a company as a marriage and, and we're in it for the long run. So we met Olga back in 2017 and made our investment late in 2018. PPO is an ag tech company that's addressing challenges in our global food system around safety and around quality. More specifically, what they're doing is they're addressing challenges such as the $4 billion annual loss that takes place in the food processing space around foreign material detection. And so food recalls for foreign material detection. But they also are doing quite a bit of work on the quality side as well. And so they're using hyperspectral imaging. And so a little bit of information about PPO is historically, this was not a food company. They were a company that made literally some of the world's best lenses. And what they did is they took those lenses off the public market. And it's now part of just the intellectual property inside of the company. Second generation took over the company and said, hey, I want to do something different. And she's an engineer by trade. And so what she did, she had a team of engineers and they came in and said they wanted to address this issue in the food processing space. And so they built 
a piece of hardware that's also got software attached to it, where they're targeting food processing plants. And so what they've done is they've built this machine that sits on the food processing line and at line speed, roughly 140 feet per minute, they have the ability to detect at 100% rate all of the different foreign materials that can show up down to a millimeter in size. And so really what they're in is they're in the automation space, right? And so with the sales that they have today with, with the companies they're working with, What's been shown is that they have the ability to replace up to four people in a food processing line. So replacing those people with the technology that catches things at a much higher rate and at a much smaller size. And so where we see the long term vision of this company being is really becoming a data company. Right. And so as as you get a number of units out in the field and in place and not just a total number of units, but particularly the more units that a customer will have call it a maple leaf or a Tyson Foods or whomever they may be, the more that they have, the more data we are able to provide them to make decisions. And so we really see that these are not uh, short-term, one-time relationships where they they have a sale and the product is put on the plant and they move on. These are really long, sticky relationships where it may start with one or two units. But what we ultimately see is partners that have their entire processing plants outfitted with these machines. And there's an enormous amount of data that is able to be used at a very granular level at the at the plant level, but also that bubbles all the way up to the sea level, where at any point in time, the executives can have a very clear snapshot of all of their processing plants that are all over the world in terms of what foreign material looks like, what protein, fat content looks like. This gives them the ability to move further upstream and maybe change some suppliers, get more from certain suppliers because the quality is better and so forth. So we really see this as a data play long term. But that in a nutshell is is what PMP Optic is doing. I find it so interesting to hear from an investor like Kevin about what gets him excited about his portfolio companies. You can certainly tell the level of detailed due diligence that goes into these investments. And we're actually going to feature a few other Fulcrum Global Capital portfolio companies later in the year and bring Kevin and John and Dwayne back on to talk about those as well. Now, Kevin did a great job of introducing you to today's company, but just a couple points I'll draw your attention to before we jump into this conversation with Olga. Olga is an engineer herself, and she started the company with her dad, who has a PhD in optics. Their technology, hyperspectral imaging, allows them to evaluate products on a chemical level. And Kevin mentioned some of the many applications to doing this in a food processing environment. You also heard Kevin mention that PMP Optical for a long time was not a food-focused company. I asked founder Olga Palachek to begin our conversation by telling us what led to her pivot into food. So that was a very interesting time when the oil and gas industry collapsed about seven years ago, six, seven years ago. We were just doing some experiments in looking at concentration of bitumen in oil sands. And we had these really large, about two meter or 10 feet long core samples that we would scan and see how much bitumen there was in in the sand. Just as that was kind of gaining momentum, the oil industry collapsed and we knew that we can detect fat in a substrate. And just so happened that somebody was visiting our local tech community here that was a producer of pork in Europe and asked us whether we could see distribution of fat in pork. And we said, 
well, we can see bitumen and sand, no reason why we wouldn't be able to do that. So we did some preliminary studies on that and it looked, yes, we can, and we can do it quickly. And we've never turned back. Coming into an industry that every single one of us touches every single day is so affirming, I would say. It's, it's just fantastic to be able to help this, this industry that we would never, we, we can't live without. It just, it feels inspiring. And actually the need for, of the industry is great. When you look at what we as consumers, as people who eat every day, what we're looking for, and then what the pressures on the industry are, it's great that we can provide some information that wasn't available before. Yeah, let's talk about that more specifically. What information you're providing and why it's important. You know, it sounded like that first use case was detecting fat percentage on pork. When and why would that be used? Yeah, so so if you look at what what are the important aspects of food production. So you want safety, you want quality, and you want to produce exactly what you need it to produce. If if your listeners don't know, in meat for example, fat is much cheaper than protein, just like it is in beyond meat for example. So if you're making something like a sausage or a hot dog, you want to be able to determine the composition of the meat mix very precisely as it's going into the hot dogs or or the sausage so that you're within specifications but you're not over providing protein or not undercutting the protein that your consumer expects and how it's done right now is very often a batch measurement process so somebody takes a small sample of a batch grinds it measures the composition and obviously you don't know what the rest of your mix is you just know what that little tiny portion of the mix that you were putting in is Whereas if you have continuous measurement, it allows you to to really control your process and say, well, maybe this sausage is now should be stopped and we should add some more protein or some more fat. Safety is another big aspect. You know, right now, food is really made in large factories. If you look at a normal chicken processing plant or a, or a pork processing plant, those plants tend to have multiple production lines at a time, which have hundreds of feet of conveyor belts running in them. And unfortunately, conveyor belts get used up. And these conveyor belts are carrying hundreds of thousands of pounds every day. They go very, very rigorous, undergo very, very rigorous cleaning procedure every day. They're taken apart, put back together every single day. So plastics from conveyor belts tend to degrade over time and fall on the food. There are gloves, there are bags, there are bins that are plastic. So all these potential contaminants might be introduced in processing plant onto the food product that we're going to be eating. Right now, there are very few technologies that can detect that. So a lot of the time, contaminants like that are found with uh, by inspectors or humans on the line, which, as you can imagine, is one of the most horrendous jobs on the line because you're staring at meat for your entire shift, not the greatest use of human capital. And frankly, humans are very bad at detecting small objects for that many hours at a day at a time. So we help in detecting plastics that are, for example, light color plastic on light background of meat or wood or cardboard, things that are not detectable with x-rays 
still might be in the production line, but are very difficult to find. That's another version of, of what we can do. And the third one is quality. And, and that's where I think that's the most fascinating aspect, where chemistry of food for dictates how it will taste and how it will feel or bake or, or you know, barbecue. So how tender is your pork loin? Is it going to be delicious or is it going to turn into a mushy mess on, on your frying pan? You know, those kinds of things. Can we predict that from the structure and chemistry of the meat? And the short answer is yes, but you have to be looking for that and you have to be able to build models to predict whether this particular piece of pork is going to be delicious and it's super high quality or that piece of pork, which is going to make just a meh meal. Yeah, very interesting. And, and for your customer, which I imagine are, it sounds like large meat processing plants that would install this technology. You know, everything you said is a compelling case of why this is a good idea. But a lot of times with these, especially when they're gathering information, you have to also identify like, where are they feeling the pain? You know, where are they, where are they really feeling the pain of this that they want solved that you could bring to them? So to a large meat processor, what problem is this solving for them in addition to giving them this information? So uh, let's talk about recalls due to foreign objects. Right now, in the last several years, meat recalls have been doubling year over year due to the presence of foreign objects. And frankly, it is for several reasons. One is that the technology has improved and uh, USDA has been really putting a lot of pressure on the, on the companies to detect foreign objects. It's not a pleasant experience for a consumer to bite into a piece of plastic or, or find something in their, their food. And those recalls are costly and they damage the brands very dramatically. You know, who wants to buy from somebody who, you know, recently had a published foreign object found or something like that. But really the concern is for, for safety of consumers. Again, because the food producers have such large plants, uh, factories, it's very difficult to eliminate 100% of contamination. So putting in new technology is very important. So as your plants grow, you have to introduce more and more technology to help you solve the problems that the growth of the plants introduced. And I think that's where foreign objects are happening. And if you look at what, what the estimated costs of a single recall are, it's about $10 million on average, with some being much more expensive than that. And that's just product lost let alone brand damage. So that is a very compelling reason. You know, nobody wants to harm their customers and nobody wants to have an actual recall. The other aspect that we see people really do see a, as, a, as an advantage from using our systems is the fact that they can differentiate their, their product. So if you have a consistent, repeatable way of measuring quality, you can really start doing something with your product. So let's say you are a pork processor and you know that about 10% of your pigs are just not going to create the best product that you'd like to sell. You can divert those pigs right away into sausage making or hot dog making and you don't have to process expensive cuts of meat that are very labor intensive you can divert them immediately to, to you know, different process and you process only your high quality cuts where you're not embarrassed to put your name on and you're selling high quality. So we're seeing quite a few customers, you know, in chicken, when you're eating a sandwich from, from one of the large 
restaurant chains. They worry about the quality and consistency of their product. They want this type of chicken with this specific cook, with this specific water content. So it feels whether you eat it in May in Texas or in September somewhere in Maine, you want that chicken sandwich to taste the same, feel the same. So consistency is very important to a lot of producers as well. No, that's really interesting. Now, if I'm understanding correctly, you're mounting these sensors or might you call them cameras on the line. And so you've got this meat that's just going by like crazy. In fact, that's one of the things from COVID-19 that has stuck out to me is when one plant goes down, the amount of meat that th- that one plant was producing is just astounding. So you would actually have to have sensors or cameras set up to capture 100% of that meat going through, right? That's correct. And that's exactly how existing technologies are set up. So every piece of meat is right now inspected in in plants by x-ray machines, metal detectors, and probably human inspectors. So ours is not a technology that replaces those. It's a technology that adds more information with probably a caveat that, frankly, human inspectors by now can be replaced with vision systems. They're exact enough and and fast enough that I would say that they're they're doing quite quite well comparatively to humans. But x-rays have their strengths where they can see deep into product, whereas vision is like our eyes, only sees the surface. So we have to flip product to look at both sides of it to, to see uh, you know the surface of, of every piece of meat. But if you consider these machines processing food, sometimes the speeds reach 100 feet a minute. So it's so fast that you can barely see and focus on the meat going by. The speed is tremendous. It's hundreds of thousands of pounds going through a single processing plant in a day. And then what do what do they do with the information? How does it show up for them on a just on a real practical level? So if, if you've got all these mounted on the line, all this meat going through, essentially evaluating each piece of meat, what information are they given and, and what really can they do about it with, with things happening that quickly? Yeah, and that's a great question because uh, one of our machines can generate about 22 terabytes of data in a single shift. So obviously, that's not what you want to be displaying. It's it's multiple Star Wars movies, at, uh, you know, uh, being watched at the same time. So what the huge aspect of our technology is that we can actually process that data and display very simple information. This is you know, your chicken, here is something that doesn't belong on chicken. And we actually trigger a sorting mechanism right away within fractions of a second to be able to sort out the pieces that do not belong on the line uh, out of it. So it's that transformation of these terabytes of data into simple yes, no decisions that actually is what I was talking about before, almost miraculous, where the algorithms that we use and the technology that we use is is quite advanced. And there's a lot of math going on under the hood in there. And how does this help? I, I realize how it, you know, you get rid of the foreign materials, the stuff that you don't want in there, but how does this help food quality? So food quality, again, it's uh, very much about predicting how a given piece of meat will behave or a given uh, piece of spinach or something like that will behave. You know, right now, for example, a meat quality is oftentimes tested by experts on the line where they'll pick up an occasional sample and manually touch it and say, well, this 
chicken has woody breast or it's not very tender or it's very, you know, very, it will be very chewy when cooked. So experienced operators know how to detect it, but they don't touch every single piece on the line, right? So if we can take a step back and look at it with technology that sees chemical composition and can see, you know, the gradation of the cells, how old the cell is, how much water there is, what type of protein, what type of fat, that information can translate into the quality and therefore can sort every single piece on the line. Okay. And you, you've been at this a long time now in kind of going from the research phase to the commercialization phase. Talk to us about that, the learnings of trying to take something that does require quite a bit of research and development and actually bringing it to commercialization. What's, what's that commercialization process like? That, that's a very good question. And it's, a, it's, a, it's never a linear path, I think, is what always stuns me. When you think something is simple and is going to be the best idea and super easy to implement, that's never true. And things that are not very obvious become easy and fantastic, like the food industry for us. Had you spoken to me 20 years ago or 10 years ago asking about the food industry, I would have thought it's, you know, it's slow moving. They don't have the need. They already solve these problems. Uh, you know, everybody can read the label at the back of their cereal box. Obviously, they know what they're doing. And the industry is not really accepting new technologies. And then we went into this industry, you know, starting talking with people. And that's not true. It's an industry that's moving extremely rapidly, especially if, if you look at some of the work that's being done in chicken processing. From hatcheries all the way to the products, there has been tremendous amount of innovation that happened in the last 20 years. Just think of the types of chickens that are bred and what kind of products you can get at what prices in the grocery store. It's innovation from feed, how the chickens are grown, the genetics of the chickens, all the way to packaging and how it's delivered to us. Never frozen meat. That's pretty much every fast food supplier now is proud of that. That's, that's only last few years that, that was, that's become possible. And why? Because the speed of the entire value chain, how things move around, how fast processors can process, and fantastic packaging technology. Like, there's a lot of innov innovation in this industry that everybody thinks is, you know, like, well, it's just farming, just food. No, it's not. I think a lot of us during, you know, th this COVID-19 pandemic ha have realized how many people go into meat processing and the amount of uh, employees it takes to mm -hmm. keep one of those plants going. Is there potential for more automation in, in, in the processing? And not saying they haven't been innovative, but it sure seems like, boy, there's got to be a technology that would maybe decrease the, the amount of people it requires to, to process this meat. Or, or am I looking at that wrong? I think right now what we have seen is huge amount of innovation on the farming side and huge amount of innovation on the consumer facing side, so how restaurants work, packaging, things like that. In food processing, the innovation has been more about scaling and optimization, but not so much in automation. And I think it's right now is going to be the time, and it has been for the last five, 10 years, automation has been an issue already before COVID. And I think COVID is going to 
speeded up dramatically for several reasons. So already labor shortages, just what you mentioned, it, uh, some of these plants require thousands of people working side by side, shoulder to shoulder to process the, uh, the food. And where are these plants uh, located? Mostly in areas that have very limited populations of so rural areas, somewhere, you know, small towns in the middle of a state, somewhere like that. So they're when these plants are expanding, they actually don't have access to more employees. So, and turnover rates in the entire industry have been quite high as well. So I think I read a McKinsey report a couple of years ago where the food processing turnover rate is about 70%. And that was pre-COVID. I expect right now that will be much higher. And it's just not the best use of, hap uh, of human capital, right? So we have shortages, the jobs are difficult, automation has to happen. And I think technology has finally caught up where we can do things that are fast and not obvious. You know, it's much easier to automate an iPhone production where every phone is exactly the same. It's much more difficult to cut out muscle from cows or pigs that are completely different from each other and the handling requirements are quite different so so there the robotics and and imaging is much more challenging i would say on on the food production than it would be in any other factory setting beyond meat processing are, have you looked into other food processing or are you still pretty committed to just focusing on meat for now so it's difficult to learn everything about everyone all the time. So we focus mostly on the meat industry. However, we have had some conversations with produce manufacturers as well and other packaged good manufacturers. So for example, things like sorting potatoes and sorting peppers, things like that is possible. We've done a lot of work with a Canadian company, Ippolito Produce, on spinach sorting, for example. It's the same technology. It's just that the requirements of the plant are a little bit different, where I would say meat is probably one of the most rigorous requirements, how just how much volume, the weight, and also, you know, it's raw product. So, so cleaning it up, cleaning the machine afterwards is, is, is quite challenging. So short answer is yes, this is absolutely adaptable for other types of food processors. But right now we chose the meat industry. It is a high volume, high cost item that we can help with. Is there an artificial intelligence element there where you actually get better over time because you're sort of training the algorithm? Yes. There is a debate about what is machine learning, what is uh, artificial intelligence, but we've used some of the newest approaches uh, to, to image recognition, for example, like neural networks, where we were able to learn from a human person that was an expert in sorting spinach, for example. Somebody sorted leaf by leaf for us, a couple of bags of spinach, and then we were able to replicate their behavior in our machine, but uh, thousands times faster. So, so we do that, but then we do more traditional machine learning algorithms as well, where they're much more predictable. So there is no, you know, in artificial intelligence, sometimes it's a black box that you don't know what you're actually doing inside of it. Whereas for me, machine learning is a little bit more prescribed. You know exactly what math you use to get from point A to point B. So we, we do a combination of both. But over time, as we get exposed to more and more information, our machines definitely learn. And for example, one of the advantages of using hyperspectral technology is in fact the ability to learn new chemical signatures over time. So let's say there is a new plastic introduced in making gloves. 
that nobody has thought of today. But in five years, it comes on and you're all of a sudden are finding pieces of these new gloves on your chicken. Our machine can be adapted with new algorithms to find that new plastic. So the imaging head stays the same, the software changes. And do you anticipate this type of technology gaining in scope? You know, right now it's it's to solve a problem like the one you just mentioned, but could it be, you know, could it be more? Could it help in, for example, deboning is something that requires a ton of human capital to take the meat from the bone. Once you have this level of, of granularity in what you're looking at, does it start to enable other automation technologies to to help with some of the labor challenges? Absolutely, I, I think so. So, for example, you know, making uh, cutting out chicken fillets out of chicken breasts or something like that, optimizing the cut based on the quality of of the meat. So, if you have a breast, uh, some portions of it are more likely to be a little bit tougher than the rest. So, maybe those are cut specifically out, things like that. So, yes, I definitely see that. And deboning a chicken, uh, you know, being able to identify bone versus meat is quite a challenging problem for a lot of technologies, including x-rays, because chicken bones are such low density. So we can help in that as well. The problem is we have to see the bone. So we have, it's a surface only technique. So it's, what I'm seeing is combination of technologies is starting to get to the point where yes, complete automation of a production line is possible. I imagine one of the challenges that might be unique to meat versus something like oil and gas is the need for everything to be cleaned uh, so often and to be completely sterile and and be able to withstand being basically washed multiple times a day is that a problem with with the has that been a challenge to get your technology to that point where that's not a concern well, it, it certainly is a challenge and you have to start thinking about it really early on in the development of a product like ours. We were very fortunate to have very strong supporters here in Canada. So Maple Leaf Foods, for example, helped us in developing some of our first prototypes, Conestoga Meats, just next door to us. And they were so open with their expertise and kind of best practices of how to how they treat systems, uh, machines like ours in the plant. So we we were able to to see the best practices that they would like us to implement and actually talk through the design with with these producers. So it was a huge engineering challenge with a lot of support from the industry towards us. Because again, you're right. I, I mean, uh, high pressure, high temperature, caustic materials, going into every nook and cranny of a machine, you know, all the surfaces, for example, of our machine have to be sloped so that no water pools anywhere. You know, things need to be easy access so that people can wash the machine down really quickly and effectively. It's not something you just build a machine and then put it in a plant and ask, oh, does it work? You have to work with the industry from the get-go to make sure that you build the right thing for their needs. And it was a challenge. And the first machine that we delivered wasn't perfect, but it did its job. We were able to modify a couple of aspects that turned out, for example, conveyor belts were really difficult to remove. We modified it. Uh, so from now on, every single machine that we build has much easier access to remove conveyor belts, for example. So uh, we've learned a couple of hard lessons, but it's been overall, it's been a, a great experience. Yeah. 
Yeah, that part seems, I mean, that seems really interesting. And from, from the customer standpoint, is the big upfront, you know, the upfront investment of installing the system, is that the biggest barrier or is it just, do they have to change other things about their processes that make this difficult for them to embrace? I would say the biggest barrier that we've faced till very recently is prove to us that this works. Now it is uh, it is the cost of install of the first system. The change is there, but it doesn't ch- change the process tremendously. It alleviates some issues with existing processes. So, you know, again, like you can find foreign objects or sort something out. It doesn't change the, the line dramatically, but helps it. Okay. Well, we talked about food quality and food safety. Is there an element here to the food waste problem in terms of efficiency of waste as well? If you can, if you can identify the chemical properties of something earlier on, can you more utilize it to its fullest capacity? Absolutely. So we've seen that both in produce and in meat. In produce, for example, you know, being able to uh, determine quality of a batch of spinach early on in the process means that you can now divert a given piece uh, spinach to, you know, smoothies or soups as opposed to packaging them for salads. So there is definitely a selection process that you can apply. In the meat industry, we've seen a couple of things, definitely kind of sorting by quality helps, but even things like making sure that your formulation of product is correct is very important because once you make a hot dog, it's very difficult to unmake it. However, if you're mixing, you know, the trim to be ground, then to become a hot dog, you have an opportunity to act on it quickly and you don't misproduce something that sometimes you might have to donate or sometimes throw out because it doesn't read, it doesn't follow the recipe closely enough. So definitely we're seeing that. And finally, even in in sorting out foreign objects, you know, again, it's much better to sort out a foreign object that's incoming into a plant or incoming into a process than to find a foreign object in a packaged good. If you find it in the packaged good, you oftentimes have to throw out an entire half a shift production or even a shift worth of production. If you identify a foreign object and you see it's a glove and you stop production and ask, hey, is anybody missing a tip of their glove? You might have to eliminate only you know half an hour worth of production. And that's huge. Again, we're talking about hundreds of pounds being on produ- in, in the production process on any given day on a line. Mm-hmm. What about on the business standpoint? What are the next milestones you're looking to hit with PMP Optica? So, you know, again, we're fairly early in the adoption cycle of the technology. So, so it's uh, finding more companies that do need this technology, deploying more systems. And I think kind of starting to look at the data analytics of what we can provide our customers. So it's one thing to give statistics on when foreign objects are occurring and what types of foreign objects, but we can also start looking at quality of the product. So we can be sorting out foreign objects, but also provide you with the real information about the quality of the product going through at the same time. How does that impact purchasing decisions, production decisions, optimization of process, things like that. I, I, I think those are the more fascinating aspects of what our technology enables. And I'm really looking forward to figuring that out with our customers. Well, thanks so much to Olga Palachek of PMP Optica for being on the show during this 
COVID-19 pandemic, it's become very clear there's room for more automation in our food system, especially in meat processing. So this was a very timely episode, I thought. Learn more about what they're doing over at ppo.ca. Great job snagging that domain, by the way. We should have talked about that. Also, thanks to Fulcrum Global Capital for partnering with me on this episode and others that you're going to be hearing from in the upcoming weeks and months. They have a really, really cool portfolio of companies like PMP Optica. Go learn more about them over at www.fgcvc.com. So that would be for Fulcrum Global Capital Venture Capital. So fgcvc.com. Really appreciate your time and your attention, especially those of you who reach out. It it means a lot when you uh, let me know you're finding value in this podcast. So thank you very much for all of you who've done that. I'll be back next week with another story of ag innovation. Hey, thanks again for listening to the Future of Agriculture podcast. If you like what you heard here today, I'd love to connect with you further. Go over to futureofag.com. That's futureofag.com. And let me know a good email address for you so we can keep in touch. Also, you'll be able to check out a ton of bonus content on the blog while you're there. Otherwise, make sure you're subscribed to the show so you can catch another fascinating ag innovator here next week. Mm